Okay, it's 6.30. David, I think we're good to go here. Not as expecting throngs of people tonight, so. Okay, the West Hollywood Planning Commission acknowledges that the land on which we gather and that is currently known as the city of West Hollywood is the occupied, unceded, seized territory of the Gabrieleño Tongva and Gabrieleño Keech peoples. This planning commission meeting is being live broadcast and teleconferenced on the city's website and is also provided on a wide array of streaming media platforms to offer access to the public to the fullest extent possible. You may call in to make a comment and you may also listen to this meeting by dialing 669-900-6833. The meeting ID is 895-9175-0532 and then press the pound sign. We OTV staff have confirmed that this planning commission meeting is currently streaming successfully on Spectrum Channel 10 and online at weho.org slash wehotv. In addition, and as a courtesy, this meeting is also successfully streaming on the city's YouTube channel at youtube.com slash wehotv and on Roku, Apple TV, Fire TV, and Android TV. WeHoTV staff monitor this broadcast on all platforms throughout the meeting and will notify the planning commission secretary should broadcast disruptions arise. Please do not interrupt the live meeting by calling or texting the planning commissioners about difficulties viewing the meeting. Please understand the internet speeds, device reliability, third-party platform reliability, and individual or personal technical issues are out of the scope of this broadcast. If you are experiencing viewing difficulties while watching this live stream, please reload the page or visit weho.org slash wehotv to access our official live stream and to view a list of other available streaming options and a guide to troubleshoot your connection. If you do continue to experience difficulties, you can also call 323-848-3151. I'm going to go ahead and call to order this meeting of the West Hollywood Planning Commission. This is a regularly scheduled meeting. If anyone needed a reminder, it is Thursday, April 6th. It's very nice to see everyone. Um, Pledge of Allegiance. I don't have a lot of uh, options tonight, so I'm going to volunteer as tribute myself and lead us in the Pledge of Allegiance. pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you. Item three is roll call. David, can you please call roll for us? Thank you. Good evening, commissioners. Uh, Commissioner Meadows. Present. Commissioner Lombardi. Present. Commissioner Gregoire. Present. Commissioner Copeland. Present. Commissioner Carvalero. Present. Vice Chair Thomas. Here. Chair Jones. Here. And we have a quorum. Great. Item four is approval of the agenda. This is for this evening's agenda. Do I have any requests for changes? No? Do I have a motion? I move approval. Oh, great. There is a delay on the screen, by the way, so... All right, we have a motion on the floor to adopt the agenda. And the motion passes to adopt the agenda as presented for April 6, 2023. Great, thank you. Item five is approval of the minutes. 5A is a verbatim transcription of the January 19th, 2023 meeting. Are there any requests for um, edits or changes to the minutes? Do we have a motion to, looks like we have a motion on the floor. Motion by Vice Chair Thomas. 
Seconded by Commissioner Carvalero. And the motion passes uh, unanimously, approving uh, the minutes for January 19th, 2023, as presented. Thank you. Item 5B is a verbatim transcription of the February 2nd uh, meeting of this year. Do we have any requests for changes? Uh, Commissioner Copeland? Uh, thank you, Chair. I just wanted to uh, mention that I will be abstaining because I was absent from that meeting. Thank Great. You. Thank you. Any other requests for changes? My only request is you can put me in yes for the previous one as well. The delay wasn't working on the screen. Oh, okay. Six. Okay. Thank you for noting that. Okay. Do we have a motion? It looks like. Motion by Commissioner Lombardi, seconded by Commissioner Carvalero. And the motion passes, noting six ayes, and Commissioner Copeland abstaining, approving the minutes for February 2nd, 2023, as presented. Thank you. Item six is public comment. David, do we have any uh, speakers on the line? Uh, Chair, we have no public speakers at this time. Great, thank you. Item seven is a director's report. Hello, John Kehoe. Hello, Chair, Vice Chair, Commissioners. John Kehoe, Director of Planning and Development Services. It's great to see everybody. It's been a, a really long break for the Planning Commission. It's great to be back. So. Welcome back. Just two um, announcement of items at council. Uh, one was at the meeting on Monday night, the council approved a contract with Francis Cray and Associates to conduct a lighting study for the proposed billboards on Sunset Boulevard. I know there had been some concerns about lighting issues, so we've contracted with the individual firm that helped us um, do the first um, studies on the Sunset Boulevard program. So they'll be looking at all the round 1.5 and 2 to look at the potential impacts of those signs um, so we can then determine if any changes need to be made or the determination of what uh, CEQA analysis we need to do for those studies, for those projects. And then uh, the next thing is on the next City Council meeting, April 17th, the appeal of 1317 Crescent Heights Boulevard is going to be on that agenda. So those are my updates for tonight. Great, thank you. Any questions for John? All right, thank, thank you. you very much. Item eight is items from commissioners. Do we have anything from anyone at this time? I have to say, without these, those barricades, it's a lot easier to, to look both ways. No comments from anyone? Okay. Uh, item nine is consent calendar. There is none. Item 10, public hearings. We don't have any. Uh, item 11 is new business. And the sole uh, purpose of our meeting this evening uh, is item 11A, which is an overview of state housing laws. Um, I know some of us have been asking for this and are very excited about it. Uh, the city attorney's office will be providing an overview of recently enacted state housing laws and how uh, these impact general law municipalities. Um, so I will turn this over to Jennifer and Isaac sure. Rosen. Yeah. yeah. Is my mic on? Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. All right, good evening to the commission. It's really nice to see everyone's faces. I know our, our director mentioned that too, but it's nice to be in person and to see everyone and get a little daylight uh, at the tail end. So 
Uh, this evening, as the chair mentioned, I'll be talking about uh, and conducting the first of what we hope is several trainings for the commission. Uh, tonight's training is going to be an overview of state housing law, and as the chair alluded to, uh, we'll be talking about new legislation. We'll also be talking in the first sort of half of it a bit, a bit about sort of existing state housing laws that come before us. Uh, and come before the Planning Commission quite frequently as sort of a refresher. Uh, the table of contents uh, is, is on the screen. I'll talk really briefly about the Planning Commission's purview under state law and our municipal code. The overarching posture and intent from the state legislature, we've seen sort of a, a flood of changes to existing housing laws over the last five or six years. Uh, and obviously that's, that's quite pertinent to this body uh, and to, to the actions you take regularly. Uh, we'll be talking a bit about the history of the Housing Accountability Act, the changes instituted to that long-standing law by SB 330, uh, which amended the HAA, the Permit Streamlining Act, and codified the Housing Crisis Act. And we'll be talking a little bit about court and state guidance uh, and, and how those sort of interplay uh, and the legislative intent, intent behind some of these recent changes. I'll talk really briefly about some of our recent ministerial legislation. As the commission knows, a lot of those items don't come to the commission for discretionary public hearings. However, you often see them in the text of uh, zone text amendments uh, that the planning commission chooses whether to recommend or not to the city council. So they're relevant also to sort of the uh, larger imprint the state is taking in um, sort of characterizing housing projects more generally or broadly uh, within that sort of ministerial framework. And finally, I'll be talking a little bit about 2023 housing laws that impact the Planning Commission, whether it's going to be projects um, that will be subject to these new, these new laws that come before you as discretionary hearings, or just as illustrative of sort of, again, the, the, the intent and sort of what we're seeing uh, as a through line with the state legislature with respect to housing. Um, an important sort of caveat off the top, obviously the Planning Commission handles quite a lot of uh, applications, housing applications as a quasi-judicial body. So tonight we're not talking about any specific project. We're not t talking about sort of a specific rule or interpretation of our code or state law uh, to the extent, uh, you know, that's gonna be pertinent to pending projects that may come before the Planning Commission in the future. But uh, I hope this is still informative and, and certainly there's a Q&A part at the end of, of the presentation and the goal is to sort of refresh on some of these concepts and again talk about some of the new state law. Uh, one change based on what was agendized um, in talking with our planning director, um, it, it was uh, originally going to include a component on the general plan. Uh, and changes to the general plan that the state legislature has taken. And, and really that's a, sort of a training in itself. So that won't be covered by tonight's uh, presentation, which is lengthy enough as is. Um, and uh, with that, I'm gonna move forward. So really briefly, Planning Commission's purview, um, it's not actually mandated by state law that the Planning Commission uh, uh, be incorporated into, oh, Sorry to interrupt, but I guess I'm understanding that people watching on TV can't see the screen. Okay, the, got it. And so we're going to try to move this All to right. a Zoom Great. platform. So just a moment. All right, so we'll hold off. Yeah, we can do a five-minute break. Thank you, everyone, for your patience on that. I think a remnant of our last couple of years, if it wouldn't have a technical difficulty. So thank you, everyone, for your patience. I'm going to 
rejoin sort of the presentation and where we were this evening via the Zoom platform. So um, we were talking a little bit just really briefly about planning commission's purview. So uh, uh, having a planning commission is actually not mandated under state law, um, but it is permitted. So if there is a planning commission, it's going to have certain requirements, but uh, most jurisdictions throughout the state have a planning commission so that city council can make uh, its most fully informed decision on land use and planning issues. Um, as I mentioned, the plan is to do a general plan housing element specific training on a later date because there's a lot of ground to cover and the legislature has certainly uh, done quite a bit of uh, uh, legislation related to housing element, especially dealing with housing equity issues. Um, but state law, state planning and zoning law does contemplate that if an agency has a planning commission that they have a number of things they do with respect to the general plan. Um, and one of those that I highlighted on that slide is just also to endeavor to promote the public interest in the general plan. Um, to the extent a jurisdiction has a planning commission, there needs to be at least five members. Um, and the city by ordinance assigns the functions of the planning commission as deemed appropriate. Obviously, our planning commission derives uh, quite a bit of its um, discretion from Article 19.4, that's our land use and development permit procedures. Uh, the makeup of our planning commissions under Chapter 2.52, and we also have a number of relevant policies. So think more broadly when we're thinking about present state law, uh, separate and apart from the new laws I'll be talking about. We're really going to be talking tonight about the Housing Accountability Act and the changes uh, since it was enacted in the 1980s, and then SB 330. Um, and so I think what's interesting and what we've seen from the state over the last, again, five or six years is that the Housing Accountability Act and some of these other state laws has actually had the legislative intent um, uh, from Sacramento baked into the statutes. And as a result, it provides sort of a roadmap for reviewing courts when there are challenges or court cases that deal with some of these state housing laws. Um, and so I think this quote um, from the state that's actually now within the actual text of the Housing Accountability Act uh, is, is pertinent. Um, and it shows up uh, obviously in, in the Planning Commission's practice uh, that California has a housing supply and affordability crisis of historic proportions. The consequences of failing to effectively and aggressively confront this crisis are hurting millions of Californians, robbing future generations of the chance to call California home, stifling economic opportunities for workers and businesses, worsening poverty and homelessness, and undermining the state's environmental and climate objectives. So language like that, um, in addition to language within the Housing Accountability Act that also says that the policy of the state is that the Housing Accountability Act should be interpreted and implemented in a manner to afford the fullest possible weight to the interest of and the approval and provision of housing. That sort of codified legislative intent is important again, as I mentioned, because if there is interpretation by the courts, if they're reviewing um, a local decision with respect to housing, uh, the courts are going to look at that intent. And so I've pulled a, a quote from a California appellate decision, uh, California Renters Legal Advocacy and Education Fund versus City of San Mateo. It's a more recent case from 2021. Uh, so the case really does delve into the Housing Accountability Act, SB 330, some of these more recent laws. And the court said, uh, what's written on this slide, that, that the uh, intent is intentionally deferential to housing development. Um, and they've pulled from that provision of the HAA that says when reviewing decisions of a local agency, uh, 
the interpretation is to afford the fullest possible weight to the approval of housing. So we talk about the Housing Accountability Act. We also often talk in these meetings about SB 330. Um, they're, they're correlated in that SB 330 was a package of bills uh, that was enacted in 2019 and took effect in 2020. Uh, it amended the Housing Accountability Act, Act, which I mentioned before the break. It also amended the Permit Streamlining Act and added the Housing Crisis Act. So they are related in that SB 330 uh, was the most recent set of adoptions to the HA before, before this legislative session. They share the same definition of a qualifying housing development project that takes advantage of certain streamline rights um, and protections. And so that definition is the first bullet point here. When we talk about HAA or SB 330 housing projects that receive uh, certain streamline rights and approvals, uh, we're talking about residential units, plural only, mixed-use developments with at least two-thirds square footage devoted to residential use, and transitional or supportive housing, which are defined terms under state law. I did want to flag residential units as plural. Uh, we do have a case, a 2021 uh, appellate court case that confirmed that the HAA and SB 330 uh, don't in themselves apply to single family homes. We do have a, a more recent state law that, oh, excuse me, that does. But um, so when we're talking about HAA and SB 330 projects, and we're talking about these specific types of housing projects that are covered. In addition to heightened standards that deal with objective standards and, and standard of review that I'll discuss, these projects also receive preliminary application rights that vest. So they uh, effectively give housing developers rights at the time uh, they've submitted a complete application to the city's planning department. And, and that was a pretty big uh, sea change that uh, SB 330 brought about. So it means that the rules in place at the time that application were deemed complete are what applies going forward throughout the full entitlement process. And that's important because to the extent state law puts further limitations or parameters on a local agency in terms of the types of development standards that can apply, uh, those won't be applicable to an application who already has vested rights because it was deemed complete by the local agency. And then finally, a 2017 change to the Housing Accountability Act um, that's part of this SB 330 package as well. Um, the city now has an affirmative obligation when it receives a qualifying housing development project uh, to inform that applicant within a set number of days whether or not they deem, whether the city deems that project consistent with the applicable local development standards. And that's a, uh, a significant burden on, on local agencies because even before the project is gonna make it to the Planning Commission, uh, staff will, will need to ensure that the application that is submitted is reviewed um, exhaustively to ensure that the applicant is informed whether or not uh, the project uh, in their estimation complies with, with local standards. So, the Court of Appeals case I mentioned on a previous slide uh, out of San Mateo I think is, is instructive and helpful in that it, it really delves in, the court delves into the history of the HAA. And the purpose of this slide is just to give a sense that although it has felt certainly like a significant impact from the state legislature within the last several years in terms of how they're characterizing housing 
and streamlining housing projects. The HAA has been around since 1982. Um, it's just that SB 330 and some of the recent uh, worsening uh, factors of the housing crisis in the state has really turbocharged some of these state uh, legislations. Um, and so originally in the 80s, the, the Housing Accountability Act still had that standard we see today that if a project's consistent with local standards, it will be approved absent a health and safety impact. It was in, it was, uh, in 1999 that the legislature clarified we're talking about objective standards um, when we're looking at consistency. And then um, there's a couple other dates on the slide. Uh, and most importantly, and most recently in 2017, there was that notice requirement I, I mentioned that an applicant has to receive timely written notice from the city whether or not in their estimation the project complies with those applicable local standards that, uh, that are relevant to the project's uh, entitlement review. And then also in 2017, uh, there was text added to the HAA that added what's known as a reasonable person standard on objective, uh, on applicability of objective standards. And I, I will discuss that on a subsequent slide, but the reasonable person standard is really how uh, the legislature intends in, in sort of providing under the HA the fullest weight afforded to the approval of housing. It's how the legislature intends uh, that reviewing uh, authorities look at uh, that consistency finding with uh, local standards. So uh, also familiar to, to this commission, um, the Housing Accountability Act has a standard uh, that's been in place for, for quite some time uh, that if a housing development project complies with objective general plan zoning and subdivision standards when that project was deemed complete, the city can only reduce the density of that housing project or deny the project if it can identify a specific adverse impact to public health and safety that cannot be mitigated. And I've included just a, a bullet point from how that is defined, how a specific adverse impact is defined within the HAA. I would also note that um, generally, uh, courts are deferential to a local agency's interpretation of, um, of land use decisions. A city has broad police powers, certainly to set, to set its own sort of um, standards that uh, applicants must comply with. However, with respect to the HAA, um, there is a heightened burden of proof that that requirement is on the city to demonstrate a specific adverse impact if challenged. Um, and the courts have described that burden as based on a preponderance of evidence, which means more likely than not based on the administrative record. So elsewhere in uh, state housing law, so outside of the HAA, but within SB 330, this is part of the Housing Crisis Act, there's also a requirement that was enacted uh, and became effective January 1st, 2020, that says, where housing is an allowable use, the city cannot impose or enforce design standards established on or after January 1st, 2020 that are not objective design standards. And the Housing Crisis Act also has a cross-reference for what that means how an objective design standard is defined. Um, and really it just means that everyone involved in the process from city staff and, and any reviewing authority, any discretionary body to the applicant themselves can verify what constitutes an objective design standard um, outside of someone needing to utilize their subjective judgment. Um, and the definition in terms of how the legislature defines that is, uh, is attached. 
Um, and so we already saw in the Housing Accountability Act and in the history of that law um, that the legislature amended that, that specific uh, set of statutes to specify that uh, there was a heightened standard to deny a housing project based on objective standards. That SB 330 put sort of a broader parameter on that in terms of the um, applicability of applying uh, objective design standards to a project. So I mentioned again uh, this California renters legal advocacy case, a court of appeal case, and I wanted to include language uh, that I mentioned on that reasonable person standard. So the court of appeals uh, sort of looked at that language added to our state housing laws in 2017 to sort of opine on what that means in practice. And again, the reasonable person standard, um, and it's quoted up here on this slide, is essentially that when there's a question of whether or not a housing project complies with uh, applicable local standards, the reasonable person standard says if there's substantial evidence that would allow a reasonable person to conclude the housing development project or an emergency shelter is consistent, compliant, or in conformity, it will be deemed so. And when the court was evaluating that language, they reiterated that, you know, if the decision is close, um, it's the city that has that burden um, consistent with, with the burden placed under the HAA to show conformance with, with the HAA and with that reasonable person standard. Um, and at least in this decision, the court suggested that when a standard is truly objective, there's not a ton of room for reasonable persons to differ on whether or not it sort of requires someone to make a judgment call. And I think I mentioned sort of previously with this, with this case, I think it just shows how the courts are sort of looking intentionally deferentially at, at uh, housing law. Uh, and again, that's, that's kind of a byproduct of how the legislature has uh, codified their intent. So it's front and center within the statutory text uh, of these laws. So recent ministerial approvals, I, I mentioned at the top before we, we took a brief intermission, although ministerial approvals are not items that come before the Planning Commission as projects, often state law updates uh, these bills, and so the Planning Commission may see them in the context of a zone text amendment. To the extent the city has local discretion, it's important to, uh, to both incorporate that state law and utilize that local discretion to, to make these bills applicable to our community as, as best we can. Um, SB 9, for those, uh, I think everyone on this commission, uh, SB 9 was a recent law uh, uh, last year that requires cities to ministerially allow single family homeowners within single family zone parcels to uh, do what's known as an urban lot split. Uh, in which they can subdivide that parcel into two and also allows homeowners to, those same homeowner, homeowners to uh, ministerially create two unit projects within single family residential zoning districts. Just like all the other laws we're talking about tonight, all of these are meant to alleviate or mitigate sort of the extremes of the housing crisis in the state. Um, but these are also examples showing uh, the push towards objective standards in other arenas of state housing law. Certainly if there's a ministerial approval, then the city would be limited in applying only objective standards because the applicant and the housing team that would have to uh, approve the project uh, would need to be able to cite to the same, same uh, requirements associated with the project. ADU law is, is certainly one we see lots of changes to uh, quite frequently 
requiring a, a number of ordinance updates. The state uh, continues to kind of look at accessory dwelling units and junior accessory dwelling units as an opportunity to create more density uh, and more, more housing in sort of unique configurations on existing parcels with existing homes. Um, so that's another instance where uh, there are some discretionary ADU uh, permits that are contemplated, but really to the extent there is an ADU um, that meets certain state law obligations that requires ministerial approval um, over the counter uh, with a series of uh, objective local standards that are consistent with those state law parameters. And finally, density bonus law. I'll be, taking, I'll be talking a little bit more about density bonus because certainly in West Hollywood with our inclusionary housing ordinance, really any housing development project or most housing development projects that the Planning Commission will see is going to have the um, eligibility for a density bonus um, because of, of the strong protections under our local code. So under density bonus law, the actual issuance of, of uh, additional units beyond the allowable gross residential density, that's a ministerial um, approval that the city must provide. Uh, for qualifying housing projects that have an affordable housing component. So the state has said, if you're gonna construct and, and deed restrict uh, units for lower income folks, then uh, under state law, that's gonna preempt sort of certain local restrictions and allow you to build more units uh, and uh, seek concessions, incentives, and waivers. So again, because this comes up quite a bit for, for our commission, um, because of our inclusionary ordinance. Uh, I wanted to just flag that qualifying housing development projects under density bonus law are slightly different than HAA or SB 330 housing projects. To be eligible for a density bonus, there has to be at least five or more residential units, but that can be within a mixed use project or uh, condominiums or the conversion of commercial buildings to residential. And density bonus, this specific amount is based on the state law income category, so how deep that affordability restriction is on those uh, units that are reserved for lower income folks. And then the other important piece is a qualifying density, density bonus project is also gonna be an SB 330 HAA project, subject to those streamlined um, requirements and, and um, heightened standards for denial. And I think what's worth flagging is a qualifying density bonus project where if it's an HAA project and an SB 330 project, the city is restricted in, in the specific local standards that may apply and restricted in sort of how it conditions that project. But a qualifying density bonus project under state law means that that applicant can also seek a concession or a waiver from otherwise uh, required uh, local objective standards that the city could otherwise enforce. And under state law, uh, the city has to issue, there's a set number of concessions based on the income category of those restricted units. Uh, a local agency is required to issue a certain number of concessions, provided they result in identifiable and actual cost reductions to the project um, that would not have a specific adverse impact to the public health or safety or otherwise contrary to state and federal law. And then separately, a qualifying density bonus project can seek um, an unlimited number of waivers from otherwise applicable local standards, and waivers must be granted for any development standard that would otherwise have the effect of precluding the construction of that project. 
There has been some uh, sort of similar to the HAA. Density bonus law has been around for quite some time, but there's been sort of an expanded footprint in terms of how the state has thought about ways to approach the housing crisis. So density bonus law, there's been increased um, allowances um, in terms of what projects can seek out in terms of additional units beyond what would otherwise be applicable in the city. Um, and we'll be talking about that a little bit. There has been a couple laws this legislative session that deal with density bonus. Um, but because density bonus law has been around for some time, we also have court uh, cases interpreting its provisions. There was a somewhat seminal case uh, from 2011 out of the city of Berkeley. It's called Walmer versus city of Berkeley that said, in evaluating a project's density bonus uh, waivers, uh, it's a broad reading of sort of what uh, constitutes a development standard that needs to be waived in order to, fit, uh, to allow the construction of the project as is. Um, and that case also talked a bit about uh, waivers that a developer can lawfully request under density bonus law may be related to project amenities or certain things that make the whole project more desirable or uh, available for uh, it to move forward and, and to work for the developer. Um, and so I think it's, a, it's an important decision in just sort of looking at how these are applied in practice, sort of similar to the HAA or SB 330, they're often interpreted, uh, interpreted broadly in terms of uh, the rights afforded the housing developer. All right. So we're moving right along. I'm gonna talk a little bit about some of the applicable uh, state housing laws that took effect uh, or, or were part of this last legislative session. Um, and uh, I would say a lot of these, we, Lauren and I continue to sort of parse out and look at because uh, they're brand new. And some of them, I would say, especially AB 2011 and SB6 are quite dense um, and I think we're gonna see continued refinements, both in how the state is thinking about these new laws and potentially additional changes uh, going forward to the actual statutory text. But I'll be talking first about AB 2334. This is one of those new density bonus laws uh, that sort of in, uh, increase the uh, ability of housing developers um, to create more units. I'll be talking about AB 1551 that sort of returned a, a previously sunset provision that allowed a commercial density bonus. Uh, AB 2234 is uh, a post entitlement permit shot clock uh, and I'll, I'll dig into that. AB 2011 and SB 6 I mentioned that allows residential uses ministerially in commercial zones. And finally AB 2097 which puts further limits on requiring parking in certain residential and commercial projects. Uh, so AB 2334, um, the biggest change to density bonus law from, from this bill was how a local agency has to um, measure or calculate that base density in order to provide a density bonus to a qualifying applicant. Um, and so the, the definition was amended, that's the government code 6591506, uh, to define the maximum allowable density 
um, or the base density as a maximum number of units. So that's a dwelling units per acre standard. So if a local agency doesn't utilize dwelling units per acre in calculating applicable density, um, and oftentimes you would uh, potentially see a range uh, for density or other measures by which uh, a local agency has, uh, has calculated density on the site. For those agencies that don't utilize dwelling units per acre, it allows a uh, qualifying applicant to submit what's known as a base density study. So the applicant would submit uh, sort of a study based on what the actual realistic capacity on the site would be for constructing housing units where there is no dwelling units per acre standard. And the way the statutory language is written is that the local agency shall accept uh, that base density study for calculating realistic development capacity where that standard is otherwise not codified in local law. The other uh, pro uh, provisions from AB 2334 that will impact uh, projects going forward and ones that the Planning Commission will see, it used to be under state density bonus law that if there was an inconsistency between the um, permissible density in the general plan versus the zoning ordinance, the general plan prevailed, which made some sense in that the general plan is the more lofty planning document that's meant to serve as sort of the constitution of the local agency. Um, what AB 2334 revised was to say, if there's an inconsistency on maximum allowable residential density between the zoning ordinance and the general plan, whichever is larger uh, is going to apply. Um, so that's consistent certainly with um, the state's intent, again, to sort of stimulate more opportunities within existing state housing laws uh, to construct units. Additionally, for affordable housing projects um, that meet specified criteria, the city is prohibited from imposing certain um, vehicular parking standards. Some of this is already within existing density bonus law. I know the Planning Commission has seen and we've, we've talked about existing provisions under uh, the government code that say if you meet a certain affordability requirement in terms of your percentage in your housing project, by state law, the most housing that a uh, local agency can require if the applicant requests it is a 0.5% uh, uh, for uh, parking spaces per unit. Um, and already within state density bonus law, there were also certain instances where uh, a local agency couldn't require any vehicular parking, um, including if a affordable housing project was in uh, a half mile of, of a major transit stop, which comes up on a, another bill we'll be talking about tonight. Uh, what AB 2334 also did was to add certain incentives for what's known as uh, projects that exist within a very low vehicle traffic area. So before there were certain incentives or concessions above what's otherwise applicable for those projects within uh, a certain distance of a major transit stop. Now under state density bonus law, those same concessions or increases uh, are applicable to projects within this very low vehicle travel area. That is defined under state law. It means an urbanized area as designated by the Census Bureau where the existing residential development generates vehicle miles traveled per capita that is below 85% of either regional vehicle miles traveled 
or city vehicle mi miles traveled per capita. Um, so that's, to me, complicated math, but I think it's enough to say applicable to the city of West Hollywood. There's also uh, county-designated very low vehicle travel areas, and those are enumerated under state law. They do include LA County, which means we're incorporated, um, our city's incorporated in these additional sort of incentives to qualifying density bonus projects. Uh, so are our neighbors, Ventura, San Bernardino, uh, Riverside, and uh, many of the counties up in the Bay Area are subject to these new additional incentives to stimulate housing developers to create projects that have an affordability component by offering additional concessions or increases in heights um, that previously applied to a smaller uh, amount of qualifying projects. So AB 1551 is another state density bonus law change. It's interesting, it actually sort of recodified what was on the books for, I believe, an eight-year cycle and previously sunset in 2021, or expired in 2021. Uh, it reinstated what's known as a commercial density bonus. So a commercial developer can partner with, a, with an affordable housing project developer um, and create uh, a project either on site as part of this commercial mixed use project or they could move forward with a fully commercial project and work with a housing developer to create affordable units off site and so long as they do that they can get a density bonus where they're eligible for some of those same concessions or waivers that we see uh, for housing projects for their commercial project. Um, there is uh, a little more flexibility in terms of what the city can require in those instances, because unlike uh, housing development projects that take advantage of state density bonus law, for a commercial density bonus, it requires an agreement between that commercial developer and the affordable housing developer that's approved by the city. So there's a more active role for the city to sort of um, set parameters on what that agreement looks like. Um, and what those incentives are. I think what's interesting about this is in its previous iteration before the, the previous bill expired, um, there were only five total units created statewide in uh, relying on a commercial density bonus, uh, strictly relying on a commercial density bonus. So I think the legislature is looking to sort of give it another go. And again, this is part of that broader umbrella of taking existing state laws, adding new state laws that are all meant to target the housing crisis and see what may be effective in sort of the current moment in time. So this slide just provides those kinds of um, eligibility for a commercial density bonus project. You can see in that first bullet point there's um, in some cases a, a higher affordability requirement for a commercial density bonus. Um, in terms of the percentage of units that have to be designated affordable. And again, there's a possibility under a commercial density bonus that uh, the commercial developer can, can institute their project and construct density bonus units offsite, provided they're within the city and close to public amenities and close to transit. Another thing that's different about a commercial density bonus is that um, there's sort of a non-existive list of incentives that can be granted. Similar to uh, our standard density bonus law, it, it's, it's not a limited 
uh, or exhaustive menu, uh, but again, that, that should be thought of in the context that the city is ultimately gonna approve the agreement between the, the commercial developer and the housing developer uh, for, for what this project and sort of what that density bonus looks like. AB 2234 is an interesting one. Um, this really is going to be handled statewide by planning departments and community development departments, but the reason it's included in tonight's training um, is because I think it's really illustrative of how the state is trying to address housing not getting built. So we've talked about how that's handled on the front end under the Housing Accountability Act and SB 330, which is a streamlined process with, with heightened standards uh, to deny, and also sort of time limits, which are under the Permit Streamlining Act for when those projects have to be considered. What AB 2234 does is sort of addresses the issue after the project's been entitled. So the project goes through its approval process, it gets entitled, AB 2234 says that cities must now issue post-entitlement phase permits within a designated amount of time. Um, and I wanted to note, this bill is a bit broader in terms of qualifying housing development projects than the HAA and SB 330, and that includes single-family homes. Um, and the bill also puts certain time limits associated on, on city staff's um, review of a qualifying application that's seeking a post-entitlement phase permit. Um, and so I'll talk through a couple of those specific instances that will, that will slowly start to come into effect. In my understanding and talking to our city attorney is this, the city is in, in the process of updating its, its software for, for permits. Uh, so a lot of this actually dovetails nicely with sort of um, the accessibility measures that the city is taking to move some of this uh, uh, process online, uh, but the definition here of what a post-entitlement phase permit contemplates for purposes of this new and kind of novel law, we're talking about all non-discretionary permits filed after the entitlement process has been completed, uh, where the development is intended to be at least two-thirds residential or fully residential. Uh, when we're talking about what this means practically in terms of time limits on approval and the process, we're talking about building permits, uh, standard offsite improvements, demolition permits, permits for minor standard excavation and grading, those all qualify, um, but it does not apply to permits otherwise covered by the Permit Streamlining Act or for fully commercial projects, certainly because they're not gonna meet that two-third uh, requirement for residential uses. So under AB 2234, starting January 1st of next year, city websites have to include lists. Uh, so similar to HAA and SB 330 projects, you know, a housing developer under those laws is required to be able to access the city's website and see what specifically is gonna be required for their preliminary application and their application. That process is being extended now to these post-entitlement permits. So starting next January 1st, the city has to include lists of that specific information required for a complete residential application, as well as examples of what a complete application looks like. And the state law actually calls out some of the specific uh, types of residential projects that are listed on this slide, uh, where those examples uh, need to evidence to 
the applicant uh, what's going to be required. So the timing restriction on this, uh, the city will have 15 business days to determine whether a post-entitlement permit application is complete. And similar to on the front end with HAA SB 330 projects, if that, that timeline isn't met, then the application is deemed complete, which is also true of the housing development project application before it's entitled. Then the city has 30 or 60 days uh, to either approve or deny a complete application uh, that is submitted for one of these post-entitlement phase permits. Um, obviously, this is a little bit unique in that the project's already been entitled and improved. So when we're talking about how uh, the city then approves or denies an application for these permits, the way the law is structured, although you know it's, it's kind of untested and I think we'll get more guidance from the state, but the way it's structured is that the applicant, uh, the city has to provide notice within a certain amount of days whether they need to submit more information. The applicant can keep making revisions to the application if it's non-compliant with local standards until it's complete until it has all the necessary information. Um, and there are only a couple extensions uh, beyond this 30 and 60 business day requirement. The local agency can extend these deadlines if it believes there's a specific adverse impact on the public health and safety. So the applicant and the city need more time to sort out uh, how those uh, permit application materials are submitted until they can be ultimately approved. If it requires outside agency review, that will be relevant for a lot of the coastal communities that need a coastal commission permits, or if the applicant provides consent to extend. The other uh, requirements, and I'll, I'll just address these super briefly, the city is also going to have to have an online permitting system. As I mentioned, um, that's sort of already in the works in the city. Um, and the city has a compliance deadline again of January 2024 on that. That can be extended with certain findings. And then there's also the right to appeal. So again, this is somewhat unique um, in terms of how it will work because the project's already been entitled. But this law contemplates that an applicant who's submitting a um, post-entitlement phase permit application, if they receive word from the city within the designated time period that uh, the city deems what they've submitted incomplete or they deny it for, for failure to include the requisite information, there's a process by which that applicant can appeal and it can either go to the city council or if the city council so chooses, it could go to the planning commission or both. So uh, I'm sure there will be a zone text amendment that the planning commission will see uh, going forward that's gonna address this new, this new law. And another component of this that I think is worth mentioning is that it has the full weight of the Housing Accountability Act behind it in that uh, a failure to comply is a violation of the HAA. We talked a little bit earlier about sort of what that means in terms of streamlined review and the reasonable person standard in looking at sort of compliance and, and how local agencies are instructed by the state legislature to review these types of um, applications. Uh, AB 2011 and SB 6, both bills add sort of a, a ministerial or quasi-ministerial right for housing developers to construct residential development in sites that are currently zoned for commercial or retail uses. Um, and that's defined under these bills as sites where office retail or parking are a permitted use. So that's pretty broad. 
Um, that applies to a lot of zones where housing may not otherwise be um, allowed. And so it allows uh, housing applicants to build in those zones through these ministerial uh, approval processes, even if housing is not a designated use. Um, they're slightly different, the two bills, but they do share many of the same eligibility thresholds. Um, we're talking about uh, for AB 2011, either 100% affordable or mixed income multifamily projects. SB 6 doesn't have an affordability requirement, but also contemplates a, a streamlined uh, quasi-ministerial review process. So to be eligible for either of these new laws, um, the project needs to be within an urban area as designated by the Census Bureau. That's, I think, 90% of the state, so that's most places. Uh, the, the proposed site to construct housing where commercial uses are allowed has to have at least 70%, which adjoins uh, parcels developed with existing urban uses. The adjoining parcels for a qualifying project can't be more than one-third industrial. It can't be on a mobile home park. There are some other environmental considerations. It can't be within a certain distance of a freeway or an oil refinery. But the purpose, again, as is the case with everything discussed tonight, is uh, the state is looking for uh, different ways, either with existing laws or with these two new laws, just a totally new set of standards uh, that allow the construction of housing with uh, limited local discretion uh, or uh, barriers to approval. So I mentioned AB 2011. Again, that project to apply at some of those same eligibility thresholds I mentioned, um, but there, there has to be at least some affordability component, whether it's 100% affordable or uh, mixed income, uh, mixed income multifamily. Uh, the affordability requirement is, is listed on this slide in order to qualify. Um, like some of our other housing laws, for AB 2011 eligible projects, only objective standards apply. Um, and like uh, HAA or SB 330 projects, uh, if there are uh, inconsistencies that, this, that the local agency believes exists uh, with the proposed submittal for one of these projects, they have a shot clock of sorts in which they have to inform the applicant uh, in which ways they think the project is inconsistent. And again, that's uh, a heightened level of review here because the project could be constructing housing on a site where housing's not allowed, uh, but there are other objective standards like setback or height that may still apply to these projects. Um, and the reasonable person standard applies here as well. So um, the, the, the test in evaluating these types of projects is whether a reasonable person, based on substantial evidence, could determine the project is compliant with objective standards, save for, again, that housing doesn't have to be an allowed use on the site. Um, what's kind of interesting about this bill Although it, it describes uh, a ministerial approval process, it does contemplate that there can be a design review hearing, um, but it's, it's, it's very limited. So the city can hold a design review hearing so long as it's strictly focused on objective applicable standards, and it shall not in any way inhibit, chill, or preclude the ministerial approval of the project. So I would assume the state's trying to balance sort of the the nature of a ministerial approval process with some 
component for the applicant and, and the city to work together and, and for people to be heard regarding the, the scope of the project. It also has a processing time restriction similar to the Permit Streamlining Act, and it's also worth noting that uh, there is a phase one environmental review that's required for these projects. Uh, SB6, uh, similar eligibility I mentioned. This, these projects don't require an affordable housing component, um, uh, but they can invoke what was until now uh, the SB35 streamlined ministerial approval process. SB35 took effect in 2018. Um, it allowed eligible projects that met a certain percentage of uh, affordability where uh, local agency and and in local agencies where they had not met uh, their RENA production numbers to allow a ministerial approval process. That's been open more broadly because these SB6 projects don't require an affordability component, but they essentially get to take advantage of that SB35 streamline review. Um, and uh, one uh, component of an SB6 project is in order to qualify it needs what's known as a skilled and trained workforce requirement with pretty limited exceptions. That's a public contract code requirement um, that basically says those that are working on the construction of this project um, need to have a certain percentage of workers that were uh, participated in sort of an apprenticeship program within the building and construction trades. So there are certain workforce requirements on, on SB6. And I also want to note on both this bill and AB 2011 that I just mentioned, uh, there's also prevailing wage labor code requirements that are sometimes applicable. Um, and then finally, I think it's worth mentioning, we're talking about housing projects on these two bills built in commercial zones. So there are, are some protections under state law so that um, if there are existing commercial tenants, the developer is going to be required to pay certain relocation benefits. Um, and so that's, that's just a piece of how the state's trying to think about how this is going to work in practice. And finally, AB 2097, uh, my understanding is there will be an ordinance coming forward uh, eventually on uh, AB 2097. This deals with uh, changes to uh, parking requirements. Um, that limits a public agency from imposing or enforcing minimum uh, car parking requirements for certain residential, commercial, or other development projects that are within that half mile of major transit stop. That definition's on this slide. It comes up um, in some of our existing housing laws as well and relevant to our density bonus discussion. Um, and there are limited exceptions by which the city uh, can impose or enforce parking requirements otherwise prohibited under this new bill. Um, the city has to make written findings within 30 days of a completed application that's eligible because of its proximity to a major transit stop uh, to say that parking really needs to be required um, in order for uh, to avoid a substantially negative uh, effect, whether that be for existing housing or uh, special needs housing. Um, but there are exceptions to that exception. So there are instances where affordable projects, regardless of if, if city determines there's going to be a substantially negative effect, are still not going to be required to, uh, to have any parking. And uh, exempt from these new requirements are um, required parking for uh, EV equipment or ADA parking spaces. So 
thank you. I know that was a significantly long presentation, and uh, from legal, they're not always uh, they can be dry, obviously. So, anyways, thank you for your patience and for uh, your attention. I really appreciate it, and uh, we're here to answer questions uh, that the commission may have. I have a quick question. What does MFR stand for? Multifamily residential. Okay, thank you. Yeah. With respect to uh, housing advocates, which of these laws, past or present or future, do they think or have been, have been or think will be effective at producing housing? That's a good question, and I, I don't know that I know. I mean, I think my assumption is all of these came uh, with some grassroots supports from different segments of people that were interested in housing, and I, uh, this is all speculative, but I would assume that um, the state's trying sort of a series of different opportunities that uh, to see sort of what works. I know uh, SB 330, for instance, is is uh, supposed to sunset, I think, in 2028 or 2030. But I think the state has some of these new housing laws that have a designated amount of time, but can obviously be extended. And the purpose is uh, in consultation with the reports due to HCD um, from cities throughout the state that the state will be able to evaluate some actual data on which of these kind of work um, and are worth keeping in the long term. Any other questions? Go ahead. I have a few, so just bear with me. Thank you so much uh, to our acting city attorney, Isaac Rosen, and the planning staff for putting this together. Um, you know, I think state law is a constantly evolving thing. Um, and that's part of the reason why I thought we should have this, is to educate the public and then also to educate ourselves on new and evolving state laws, given that we have a full-time legislature and that every year the laws change. Um, I have a couple of questions uh, pertaining to some of the laws that we just reviewed. Um, I'm wondering specifically on AB 2334, um, this is the Base Density Study and Increase Incentives Bill. Um, it was mentioned that in a county designated as a very low vehicle travel area, which includes LA County, there's an allotment for unlimited maximum density. I'm wondering if you could go a little bit more into what that pertains to, what that means. Yeah, sure. So I think we've actually seen some of that already within uh, existing state density bonus law with respect to 100% affordable housing projects where uh, there's already contemplated uh, that a project can build as, as big as it wants with, with very limited parameters on that. I think um, there are those limited instances under state density bonus law when you have such a um, extensive uh, authorization to build sort of as much density as you want uh, that still allows a city to look at sort of health and safety considerations. But we've had, we've had similar restrictions on the books over the last couple years, again, for 100% affordable housing projects, and that's been more opened up. Um, but uh, I would say, to get to the question, I, I think we're looking at uh, sort of what is feasible on the site. And I, I don't know that I can provide more information on that because I haven't seen it in practice yet. Uh, but I think that the intent is just to, to continue to open up that avenue but the project will still have to be feasible with, with the actual parameters of the parcel. 
Thank you. Yeah, no, I know that a lot of this is very new, uh, uncharted territory for us um, in helping us reach our affordable housing and RENA goals. Um, so just curious about that. Um, my next question is, uh, still on that bill, do we have um, a dwelling units per acre calculation that we deploy here in the city, or how does that work for us when we look at it? We, we have a dwelling units per acre calculation for residentially zoned properties, and we have an FAR for commercially zoned properties. With the exception of our R1B, which has an FAR for residentially zoned properties. Perfect, thank you. Um, couple more questions. Moving on to AB 1551, commercially, uh, commercial density bonus returns. Um, this is talking about you know, basically having affordable housing as part of a commercial project, commercially zoned project. Yes. Um, there's a requirement for an agreement between the developer and the affordable housing developer, right? Correct, yes. Um, in when, if we were to see that occur in the city, would we see a public notice for that kind of Agreement? How would how would the public be made aware of that, or would it come before the commission as an as an as an informational item? That's a good question. I don't know that we I don't know that that is standardized yet in state law. Um, I think because the agreement, uh, although it provides more flexibility to a local agency, there's not a lot of precedent for this actually being used. And to my knowledge, there's nothing actually explicit within the state law that dictates what that agreement looks like in terms of how it's noticed or considered as part of the project. I would say, you know, depending on the scope of the project, it may be part of something that, for instance, the Planning Commission would see if it needed other entitlements as part of the, as part of the larger commercial project or, or mixed-use project. Um, but I think that would be contingent on the project uh, specifically and we don't have a ton of uh, guidance from the state or other sort of examples we can look at for, for, you know, if there's a precedent or a specific way that it's handled in, in other jurisdictions because it frankly just hasn't been used very often. Got it, yeah. okay. That would be interesting to, to consider is this how, you know, if there is a ministerial approval for these types of projects um, as permitted by state law, how would the commission or the public um, be noticed of those types of ministerial actions so that when they see a development come to fruition um, that may be not typical to what they've seen in past years, um, that they understand, you know, these are the implications of state laws that we're seeing pass at the state level. Um, couple, just bear with me, so sorry, a couple more questions. I'm totally into this, so thank you for being patient with me. I think it's only fair, Commissioner, after everyone's had through quite a long presentation, so please. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you. Um, so there are, we're looking at AB 2234. This is the post-entitlement permit shock clock. Um, there's a, there was a discussion in the presentation about time limits on city staff review for applications requesting post-entitlement permits. Um, does this, what, could you give an example of what exactly that means? My, my question that I'm getting at in my mind is, does this mean that a project can take on substantive changes more than 20% post planning commission hearing or post city hearing? Um, I know that that was a dis, has been a discussion 
in certain settings of the city? I would say, I don't want to speak too broadly again, because I think there's so much about this, that bill in particular, that's novel in terms of what the legislature's intent was versus how it's going to work in practice. I would say, though, because it's a post-entitlement project, you wouldn't see substantive changes to what was approved discretionarily or as part of the public hearing process because it's already been entitled with its set of um, conditions of approval and, and the specifics about the project. And I don't have the degree of expertise sort of that our, our building official probably would in terms of the specific requirements for a building permit, but I would say it's, it's fair to say it's not going to go through significant substantive changes because it's already been entitled. Is your question whether an amendment to an entitlement would be in that category? Yes. No, an amendment to an entitlement, my understanding, is still a discretionary process. It's still an entitlement. Yes. It's just It's just a subsequent entitlement. This is more building permit related. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. The, thank you so much for that clarity. Um, just a couple more, I promise. Um, moving on, we're looking at AB 2011, and I know this. a lot of this is still to be digested, but it's just these are thoughts that are popping up in my mind as I'm thinking about this. Um, the bill does allow for the city to hold a design review hearing despite having ministerial approval requirements associated with the state law. I'm wondering um, if the city, and I, it's totally acceptable if we haven't gotten there yet, because this again, this is a new state law. Um, how do we determine, because I imagine it has to be objective, right? If we're gonna do one design review requirement for one project, we would have, in this setting, we would have to do it for all of them. How do we intend to look at that? Um, and was that, is that a city council um, directive that needs to be discussed on if we're gonna be allowing for design reviews on these types of projects? Well, I think, I don't know how it will function practically. I know we do have, uh, you know, the city is looking at these new laws for where there would be sort of required zoning text amendments or, or ones that would be beneficial to the city and where that authority vests. But I would say just specific to the law, um, it, the design review hearings based on those objective standards. So there's already ones that would be built in applicable to this specific project in terms of which zone it would be. Um, but I don't know that I could answer sort of the, the procedural framework uh, for for sort of how a potential ordinance specific to these new projects would um, come to fruition. And I would also say, I think with AB 2011 and SB 6 in particular, they're, they're pretty self-executing. So I, I would distinguish them maybe from some of our other ministerial approvals, like the ADU standards, where there's more of an opportunity for uh, local, uh, local standards at least the way this bill is written, it doesn't mean that the city's precluded from crafting objective standards um, through its normal adoption process that would apply to these type of projects. But the way the law is written is that it's sort of what's, what's gonna be on the books at the time the project vests in terms of ap applicable objective standards in that commercial zone. So outside of the fact that housing doesn't have to be allowed, to the extent there are existing objective standards uh, that apply for setback and height, those will all apply. So I know that wasn't really an answer to your question, but... Um, it actually was. Okay. So thank you. I mean, it, what I'm hearing is that 
while there are ministerial elements to some of these pieces of legislation, there are still elements that need to be considered, like the setbacks and, and all of those things. So we're going to be, to my understanding from what you just said, we're going to be looking at how to deploy the use of these design reviews in that context, I specific think, to those elements. I think that's fair. Um, yes. Okay, cool. Thank you. So you didn't answer my question, so thanks. Um, I mean, I, I will just pause my questions for my colleagues to have some time. Uh, thank you for doing this. Appreciate your answers, and uh, thank you. Anybody else have any questions? Commissioner Copeland, go ahead. Thank you, Chair. Um, thank you for all of that uh, information. It's a lot to digest. Yes. But um, just a quick question. The Housing Accountability Act says that local government cannot deny housing development projects that are consistent with local objective development standards. But then when we ran through SB 330, there was a mention that the state could still require us to waiver or concession away even some objective standards that could otherwise be enforced. Is that correct? So it seems a little bit of a contradiction. What type of objective standard would be exempt from that, if any? Well, I think, yes, and, you know, and I, the way I would think of it is not as exemptions from our objective standards, but that those qualifying density bonus projects that can receive that ministerial approval, provided they make the findings, you know, I mean, it's uh, the concession that they can get from uh, an applicable objective development or design or, or subdivision standard is to construct the project. So I don't know that there are categories of exemptions from applicable objective standards, but it's just to say that that law has to, SB 330 and the Housing Accountability Act have to be read with that ministerial right under density bonus law that allows a developer to say, um, you know, I'm consistent with these standards, but on this specific standard, uh, I need a concession or a waiver in order to allow construction of the project. So I don't know that there are specific categories of standards that are exempt so much as uh, the laws intersect so that if there are a percentage of affordable units under density bonus law, there's the opportunity for the project to still be constructed with a, a designated concession or, or waiver on specific standards specific to that project. Okay, thank you. Um, AB uh, 2097, as far as parking. So senior housing would be an exception probably to that, something like that could be an exception to the parking um, regulation. Um, projects would still be required to have some amount of disability accessible parking, even if it wasn't like a, a senior building, just at your normal building, they would still have to be accessible, ADA accessible, and have a certain amount of, of disability accessible parking, no matter what. Correct, and I think this is another one of the bills uh, that I would characterize um, like the post-entitlement permit process where the actual legislative text is still, be, still being processed a bit um, and being unwound to, to understand. But I can say, Commissioner, to your point, uh, firstly, that yes, the city has the ability under the law to um, allow parking in instances where there's uh, housing for elderly or uh, persons with disabilities, and that separately, yes, 
there are carve-outs specifically for ADA uh, accessibility considerations. Okay. Um, I was. I see that the uh, you mentioned the HAA and part of it has been around for quite a while. Actually, it's just keep uh, updating um, itself. Um, with with any of these these state blanket housing laws, um, has there ever any, been any type of exemptions or exceptions for rent regulated cities or um, reduced RENA allocations for those cities that already have high vacancy rates? Has there ever been any sort of consideration of like rent regulated cities have historically been doing as much as they can to keep people housed, to keep housing as affordable as possible. But when they make these these sort of blanket state laws, has there been any discussion or uh, pendency of, of a bill perhaps that would exempt some, uh, some of the localities from some of these? I'm not aware of any, but I'm, uh, as much as I feel like I know a fair amount about the housing laws, as you mentioned, because the HAA has been around a long time, that's not to say that there hasn't been the discussion or, or consideration of those items, but it hasn't come up in Nothing my practice. Nothing recent that you're aware of. Correct. Um, the last thing, I guess, is sort of related to that, if, if you had heard of any uh, pendency of any bills with regard to Costa-Hawkins again, since the last repeal was, was not... Uh, was defeated or any pending bills regarding amendments of the Ellis Act? I have not, but I also, I, uh, I try not to get overwhelmed with yeah. some of the state tracking stuff. So it's not to say that that's not um, uh, seems percolating. There's so many housing bills going through and, and so many uh, state laws and regulations coming through. I didn't know if they, if you knew of or were aware of anybody taking a second look at any of those things. Yeah, so. I would say, I think just the, the tenor of the, uh, sort of larger theme is that uh, the state is looking everywhere. Toward construction rather than... Well, I think, uh, I think they're looking at existing laws, they're obviously, and amending those, and then they're looking at new opportunities. And so I, I was particularly interested in the commercial density bonus bill, because I think that's an interesting instance where the state tried something, it expired on its own, and, and it's back, and, and maybe there's more thought of how it can be utilized in this time and the place. So I would, I would think that um, advocates and, and legislatures are looking at everything in terms of how to, to make a dent in the, the housing crisis. Okay. Um, the, the last thing is uh, we, we touched on before, um, we can't deny housing development project, local objective development standards, but also public health or safety impact. Um, that's something that's come up before from the public with us, with uh, say noise that cannot be mitigated or air quality or, um, so the standard for that would be, uh, could you just briefly go over that again? What would be considered uh, enough of an impact or who would have to make that, uh, that decision that there's enough of an impact to that would not allow a project to, to go forward or to be reduced if it couldn't be mitigated? I don't know that I have much specificity on it beyond okay. I can speak to just sort of how the specific adverse impact is defined under state law. I don't know that we have um, uh, sort of more within, although we do have case law certainly about the HAA and about those heightened standards, mm -hmm. I don't know that we have... Um, no specificity as far as numbers, if it's above this amount or this amount. Again, oh. not to my knowledge, it's sort of in my review of the applicable law, I think we do look certainly to that language within the Housing Accountability Act that defines what a specific adverse impact is. Um, 
and I have it on one of these slides. But beyond right. that, I would say, um, you know, often that analysis is project specific, and um, and uh, all sort of interested parties need to look at the the impacts, and and that goes into all the hard work staff does in evaluating the project and bringing it forward, and and looking at those. That, that is a question that we often get asked from the uh, concern from sure. the public. So I didn't know. If if that's a decision that the city makes or if there's state guidelines, certain numbers, uh, specificity, but as of right now, no, nothing we can refer to as far as that. I, I would, I don't know that I have sort of a, a clear roadmap on I think there are, uh, there's guidance certainly from the state, but I don't know that it goes into the degree of specificity and setting out the obligations of where that comes and okay. who makes the All right. Um, decision. Those are the questions I have right now, Chair. Thank you, Mr. Yeah. Rosen. Appreciate it. Thank you. Any questions on the side of the dais? No? Questions? Commissioner Thomas, go ahead. Vice Chair Thomas. Thank you, Chair. Uh, thank, thank you, Isaac, for that presentation. It's very thorough, and I want to commend Best Best and Krieger for all the great information that was provided to us in preparation for this meeting. A lot of my questions have been answered. I had questions about the dwelling units per acre and other cities. And one of my biggest questions, though, is about objective standards. I just have some confusion around what body is determining the objective standards based on some of the timing in the documents. I wasn't sure if the objective standards or you know, lack thereof was being determined by planning staff, planning commission, city council. Um, are these decisions made before they before the projects come before us? Are we making that determination? So if you can just give some clarity on that, that'd be helpful. Sure, I think I think the state law, similarly to Commissioner Copeland's questions, I don't know that I have all the answers, and I do think we we as much as there's guidance from the state about that process, and I can go into a little bit of what that looks like under the Housing Accountability Act. I don't know that there's a definitive answer in a vacuum outside of the specificity of the project and, and the specific standards that apply. I would say the way the HAA is structured, there's both that heightened standard to deny, so that's obviously applicable to the planning commission by the time the project reaches this body, um, where you're looking at a specific adverse impact and you're looking at compliance with objective standards. Separate and apart from that, there's also the obligation on uh, the city staff team to also review the application at the time it comes in and conduct its own analysis. So I think those are separate requirements in terms of sort of the process for the planning commission and evaluating the project during the entitlement phase versus what staff considers at the time the shot clock starts on a complete application. Um, but beyond that, I think it's, it's, it's somewhat tricky to lay out a clear roadmap of, of responsibilities because we're interpreting the state law specific to a specific project. So there, there are designated roles for different stakeholders involved with the project in terms of staff versus the elected bodies, but I don't know that uh, sort of similar to, to Commissioner Copeland's question that uh, we have a more heightened degree within the statutes of, of specificity on that. I appreciate that answer. I'm just not sure. Sometimes when these projects come, come before us, we spend an hour plus mm -hmm. talking yes. about objective standards, and if it's already been determined by staff, I guess, 
then we're we're having conversations that are kind of moot. And so I'm just not sure <laughs> what what our purview is really and what our discretion is if it's already been determined and what if we disagree with staff's assessment or it's just kind of up in the air a little bit. Sure. I think, yeah, I, I agree with you, and I think that that's all part of what we're trying to parse out as we interpret and assimilate these laws that are all fairly new in terms of um, especially what Isaac was saying about the shot clock. Um, that's something that's new for us, and so I think we're all trying to figure out how that's going to play out in the future in terms of our hearings. Okay, I'm sorry. Could there were, there were two dates on the shot clock, correct? Could you just recap those really quick? Absolutely. 60 so, and 90 days. Sure. So um, let me see if I can. Oh, no, I'm good. So um, yes, the standard for the initial review for a qualifying project um, in terms of consistency with all local standards for a housing development project under the HA and SB 330, it's 30 days for projects that are 150 units or less, and it's 60 days for a project that has more than a 50, uh, has more than 150 units. And that's the initial step. And I think, uh, to Jennifer's point, um, we're, we continue to update and interpret these state laws with additional guidance we have, but there are, at least under the HA, that that more recent component of the notice obligation on the city uh, is read in conjunction still with the commission's discretion, although limited for these housing projects to conduct the public hearings for the necessary entitlements. Okay. Going back to the dwelling units per acre, at the last long-range meeting, there was some discussion about moving away from FAR and moving more towards dwelling units per acre. Is that for specifically for, will that be mixed use or residential, um, not residential, but rather um, when there are uh, residential properties in commercial zones or does that not even sound familiar to you? No, I think that we would be looking at trying to implement a dwelling units per acre standard for residential developments and commercial zones. Most of our commercial properties are mixed use, are, are zoned for mixed use, um, so that would apply, um, but I think that's still in development, and I don't know if, if anyone here wants to jump in and correct me, they're welcome to, <laughs> but I, I believe that's the intent. And would this body have any input on that, or would we just be told what that is going to be, the dwelling units per acre? Any zone text amendment comes before this body for comment and, before, and recommendation before it goes to the city council for decision. Okay, and I think I just have one other question. Um, I had a question similar to Commissioner Copeland's about um, other cities, and um, I know that HAA um, in term, when it as, when it comes to historic preservation, I know that that can impact HAA, and I know that um, there were uh, some projects in the past where residents were concerned about whether or not their area could qualify for historic preservation. So, could you just talk a little bit about historic preservation in HAA? Sure. Um, well, the first thing to note is that these projects are still subject to CEQA. 
um, and, you know, discretionary projects under um, under the HA are subject to CEQA, which will um, come into play if there's a cultural resource on a, in a property. On a property, um, we would not be able to have an exemption for that project, and so it would it would be extensively reviewed under CEQA. Um, I believe there's also a component of the, either the HA or the state density bonus law that restricts projects that are proposed on sites where it would require the demolition of a of a historic resource as well. Um, does that answer your question? Okay. Sure. And my final question is, do we anticipate that we will be in compliance with the online database dashboard by, by the January deadline? We currently have the ability to process things online. It's not it's not what we want it to be, um, but we have been since the beginning of the pandemic um, taking in most applications online via email. Uh, we will. We are working on having an updated permitting system, and that should be in place uh, in March of 2024. So I believe the deadline was the end of 2024. I think. I think so, there are different components. Yeah, I. Do, but I, I, I believe we will be in compliance with that. If not, we will be very close. Those are all my questions for now. And I would add just on that point too that the the sort of penalty, quote unquote, for non-compliance is just accepting applications via email. And the city is well versed in that, obviously, coming out of the last couple of years. So right. and um, I know our office has been working with the city team as well on on getting these uh, uh, formulated in advance of those deadlines next year. Great. Wasn't there an extension of two years yes. for cities in what was it counties with more than 250,000 people? Is that yes, right? there are extensions available, uh, and and really the rationale is associated with the cost. I think for local agencies, it's not it's not a small undertaking for cities to to move this process uh, to be totally available online. And so I think the legislature uh, recognizes in allowing ex extensions or. Uh, in terms of timing that uh, it's no small undertaking to, to get this all completed. Okay, thank you. Commissioner Lombardi. Uh, thank you, Isaac, for the presentation. And um, I also appreciate all the really good questions today. I actually have a question that maybe gets into some of the questions that Vice Chair Thomas and Commissioner Matos brought up earlier. And I, I see that Rick Abramson, city architect, is here now, but I do not want to put him on the spot. But this question may be pertinent to him. Um, dwelling unit per acre standards and AB 2334, I was just wondering, as it pertains to um, the acreage um, per unit requirement for mixed-use or commercial zones that may not currently have it in our code, I would assume that um, there's a need or desire to update the West Hollywood Municipal Code. And I'm just wondering what that means in terms of what the density may be in those zones. And also, the, I guess the other question I have that may be for you, Isaac, is is there opportunity to, to actually um, look at increased density for residential in those zones as that code is updated and applied? Yeah, I think... Um I would say, firstly, I don't know that I have all the answers on the practicalities of, of looking at our code relevant to 
um, future ZTAs that might change that. But I would say there's always the opportunity with a zone text amendment to look at increased density anywhere. And certainly there are, outside of what we talked about tonight, there are other um, state laws that allow upzoning. I think SB 10 from a couple years ago is one, uh, one bill that allows for that. Good evening, I'll just jump in. Thank so that the housing element um, that the city council recently approved includes a lot of um, items for us to look at, which include looking at increasing densities throughout the cities in, in various di different ways. Um, so yes, that's something we'll be looking at. I think one of the things with moving over to a, a dwelling unit count in commercial areas, um, one of the main reasons we wanna do that is to make it easier for us to process things through the state law density process, because right now we're having to translate our, our density calculations into the state law density calculations, and it's very, very complicated. And so if we can wind up having one system that works, it would be much smoother. Although our current system would actually allow for more units in commercial zones because it's an FAR and you can put as many units as you want. Um, if we switch to a unit count, there would be a cap. So um, that's kind of the conundrum we're in. And I also wanted to go back to a question that Commissioner Thomas asked about um, the design standards. Uh, um, so it starts with the zoning ordinance where we create the design standards that have to be objective. So obviously those go through the planning commission and the city council that create the very objective design standards that are in the ordinance that the developers and architects are looking at and then staff applies them. And so as as um, was indicated, those design standards have to be very objective and it has to be where the uh, ordinary person can look at it and can understand what that standard is. It's a 14 foot setback. It's not a, you know, we don't know what the setback is. It's something that does something, but it's supposed to be a, an objective standard that a reasonable person could look at. So that's why it is kind of unfortunate that staff is kind of put into the situation where we have to say that it complies before something comes to the city council or planning commission. But those standards, as the urban design division Rick's working on, all those changes to the zoning ordinance have to meet those criteria of being objective standards and that's where it starts. Thank you, Mr. Kehoe. And on the uh, dwelling unit per acre standard, you brought up an interesting point that it would actually be imposing a set limit on the number of units, which we do not have right now. So I'm very interested to see how that would move forward. And I know in the most recent RENA cycle, we have sites that are designated probably quite a few in commercial zones. And I'm wondering if, if maybe some of those sites could be identified and there could be some potential you know, hypothetical modeling study to understand structure and, and massing and how many units might, might fit in to those zones. And, and um, it seems to some extent like we haven't seen as much housing in those commercial or mixed use corridors as um, maybe could potentially be there. So I'm just wondering if there's opportunity with all of this and, and a chance to revisit it as well. And that is probably a good segue to another question I have um, here, which is relating to the assembly bill to uh, 2011 and SB3. Um, you, you had noted Isaac ministerial approval for certain multifamily housing developments with affordable components. 
and then you had said if um, they're new or CEQA exempt. And what I was wondering is, what if there were an urban infill type project that were going to residential from commercial? Do those laws apply or not? Is it only new? I would, I don't. What's new? <laughs> yeah, I, I would say I would ha that would have to be a project specific determination and I don't know that I have the expertise to, to answer that specifically. Okay, I don't know if it would be tied to the percentage of renovation. I know that that's a trigger that usually relates to codes, so would it thereby be considered new if it were over a, a certain percentage of re redevelopment? I, I realize that's a difficult question, but that's one thing I'm, I'm just thinking about. I don't sure. know of the likelihood that we would see a project like that, but if we were to, it'd be think, interesting to know if it applies. And I think that is one of those in a category that's probably a follow-up, um, just as we kind of dig into the specifics of how SQL will intersect with some of these ministerial housing projects that are unique in terms of where they are and what the environmental considerations are. Okay, yeah. thank you. And then, um, you know, one other question, I, I think Vice Chair Thomas just brought this up too, but on the city website in terms of Assembly Bill 2234 and the entitlement process and, and what's posted on the website, I know lately there's been a lot of confusion about things like landscape plans and what the requirements are, so I assume this is a great opportunity to just, you know, make things as clear as can be, um, which I'm sure you all are going to do, but um, you're looking toward making updates in terms of that process? So one of the things we're gonna be doing um, pretty soon is establishing a developer's library on our website, which will list um, or have links to all the different provisions that the city has, our climate action plan, our housing plan, all of our documents. It'll include links to outside agency requirements because we wanna create a place where a developer or a homeowner who wants to find out what developers have to do um, can go to that page and that there would be links to all the different forms and documents that they would need. Um, hopefully it will be up pretty soon, but I think that's a really important way to start getting to what you're talking about to where people know exactly what they need to do. Okay, great. Thank you. And then I have one hopefully really easy question. Assembly Bill 2234, the entitlement permit shot clock. Um, I also had a question similar to Vice Chair Thomas. I missed one thing in the notes that related to the approval um, to approve or deny a complete application. It was 30 days for 25 or fewer units and 60 days for something else, but I didn't yes, get it. That's good recall too. So thank you for, yes, that's correct. That's absolutely correct. Um, and uh, it's a little, you know, I know this has been the common thread of what I've said, but uh, this is one of the ones where it's a little ambiguous in state law again, because these are entitled projects and there's a different, there's a 15 business day requirement to tell the applicant of a post entitlement permit whether that application is complete. But Commissioner Lombardi, you're, you you got it absolutely correct. It's 30 days after a complete application after an application is deemed complete to either approve or deny uh, if there's 25 or fewer units, and it's 60 days if there's more than 25 units. And that important other component of this is that. Uh, the, the process keeps going so that if the city does find non-compliance or requires revision, 
the, the clock, that clock starts over and the applicant works to, to do a complete uh, new submittal within those same time frames. Okay, great, thank you. So that was um, more than 25 for 60 days. Yeah, I'll explain a little bit more on how it currently works. So right now, this, this law is mostly gonna apply to building permits, that's really the key, key category. And so the city of West Hollywood already does this, that formula they're talking about, we already have that kind of a process where someone applies within a certain number of days, we provide a letter back to them that says, here are the items that um, you need to address or correct on your building set of plans. And that goes, and we have different tiers based on the size of the building, and that can go over multiple level, multiple rounds of plan check. So this law is gonna force us to kind of modify that process to go into this system, which is much more hard-edged, I would say, because we're gonna be having to reject things. As right now, we just tell people, here's a list of things you need to correct. Now we're gonna to have to say we're rejecting <laughs> rejecting things. So it's gonna be a little bit harsher um, sounding for people, but um, that's something we'll have to comply with. But we already have a process where we provide letters to people in a certain amount of time, and we go through a cycle, and we'll be continuing to do that. Okay, thank you. And I have one last question that may be a little bit more challenging to answer, but um, one thing that has come up a lot in our review of projects here is how the question of when a project is deemed complete or how we define a project as complete. And I'll just say in, in my professional experience working on the design side, um, I've worked on many projects where there has been an intentional locking in of a current code or standard and then sticking with that through the duration of the project. Usually that's been driven by the fact that there may be more cost associated with updates to codes or updates to standards and um, in particular with sustainability um, controls and, and all these other things. But what's interesting to observe here on the Planning Commission is that and through City Council is that we've seen projects that have actually um, sort of taken in the new code or, or, or parts of it or tried to take in new, new standards and kind of redefine the projects as they move forward, um, including just this week with, with one project that was at city council on appeal. And I'm just wondering how, how do we work through these things? What does it mean? Because I, I, I'm not used to seeing projects kind of change those measurements as they move forward. And is there an opportunity to provide any clarification within our, our code in terms of what is updatable and maybe some of it relates to housing accountability and at what measures it can be updated and where it's too late? Well, I would just say, I think we need to be conscientious again that we, uh, the, the purpose and the agendized discussion tonight, we're talking really broadly about the laws. So I wanna be cognizant that we don't sort of discuss items that are part of pending projects that are in various stages. And I think part of that is also, and apologies in advance, because it won't be a very robust answer, but I think part of that is to the extent we're looking at specific rules, a part of these laws or interpretations that may be relevant to pending projects that will be sort of project specific and come up as part of a notice public hearing. Okay, um, and I, I understand I, I wasn't I expecting say, a really, really easy or clear response to any of that. And, and it kind of goes back to when, um, when a project moves forward or if it were to be appealed, for example, or, or if, if housing acts change, 
what does that mean? Does it go to planning commission? Does it go to the city council? What, what can they change and when? Is there a, a date by which it's locked in? So the, the zoning ordinance has a section that locks in the rules um, at the time that it was applied for that we can't force enforce new rules on them. It's, it's, it's a restraint on our action as a city. But it's only on our side, though. So it's but, our side. Okay. But they can voluntarily, if new rules come into play, they can voluntarily use those. Understood. Okay. And it, again, I think part of it is those, often we're looking at that in the context of a very fact-specific analysis with the specific project the deemed complete date, the specific standards. So I do want to ensure we avoid that as part of a, the sort of purpose of tonight's. Uh... Real, real quick though, Isaac, maybe w without talking about in more detail our own zoning code and really keeping it to the agendized yes. discussion of state laws, can you talk a little bit about when and how various state laws apply to a project? Yeah, I would say um, to the extent, and uh, this was touched on a little bit um, by John, but to the extent an application is submitted and deemed complete under uh, SB 330, um, that locks in the local standards. That doesn't preclude an applicant from seeking to take advantage of state laws that come into effect after that vested right in local standards. Um, and so it's challenging often because we're, we're playing catch up often with uh, changes to the state law that are fast moving. And um, I think I touched on this in one of our uh, more recent state laws, which is that you could have an instance where those, those standards are vested in place and then the state may make further parameters or further box in a local agency on specific standards. And it's always gonna be a challenge and I think it's gonna be contingent on the specifics certainly of the code in place at the time locally versus the state laws that have taken effect since that time. Okay, thank you, I appreciate that. Yeah. It was the question that I didn't wanna ask but also wanted to ask, so thank you. Mr. Manos, do you have additional questions? Just one, I promise. Okay, um, so just looking at AB 2097, um, this is you know dictating that there's no uh, parking requirements that could be put into new projects, residential, commercial, whatever. Um, I do want to ask if we're considering, and if the answer is, you know, it's a new state law, that's totally fine. But are we considering, given that the city can require EV or ADA spaces, are we considering looking at an objective standard requirement that we can employ on projects moving forward with an EV or ADA compliant, and I just ask that because you know this city is one that you know prioritizes helping those that are differently abled or uh, have mobility challenges. Um, so I'm wondering how we would look at that as a city uh, going into this new law. I think we're still developing the recommendations, and we'll bring that back for a public hearing that's been agendized to have a, a better discussion about that. So okay, so that perfect. That's my last question. <laughs> Them. All great questions. And again, precludes me from having to ask many of my own. Okay, um, unless anybody else has any questions, um, we will move on to our next item. Isaac, thank you again. Uh, Chair, oh. we do have a public speaker. I know, but that's not until after items 12, 13, 14, and 15. 
No, he would actually like to see Oh, you on mean on the actual oh, item? Yes, on this item. I'm sorry. That's my apology. Please go ahead. Thank you. Uh, we have no public speakers in chambers. So I'll turn it over to Joe for the Zoom. Yes. Uh, will the speaker, James, please state his name and city of residence? And please remember to yes. press star six to unmute. Hello. Hi there. I'm sorry I almost got skipped over. I mean, there's a lot of long witness windedness and, and this is what happened. So I appreciate someone saying that. So chair, just be aware of it. Because I already had all the audio technology technical difficulties where I couldn't call, call in and listen for the last hour. So it's very frustrating. Besides that point, um, I just want to make the fact that um, I've lived in the city for 12 years. I have literally had to deal with getting on lists for the city of West Hollywood for the last 10 years with no avail. There is housing crisis going on within the state. The state has to injunct, uh, uh, interject, and, and set a mandate. And as John Keogh had explicitly said, and that the, com the commission is, is understanding, and I appreciate you having this hearing session, I almost missed it if I didn't go to the city website. So it's frustrating because we are at a moot or a, a quagmire where you have no available housing, we're relying on West Hollywood Community Housing Corporation. That's the only developer. People are adamant they don't want it in their neighborhoods on the west side. There is no affordable housing with half this city and the affluent neighborhoods. I would have to wait 20 years of residing in this city in order to move west, in order for me to be in a nice area without having to live in a commercial zone. I mean, it's ridiculous. The, the state said to the city of West Hollywood, you need to build 3,000 units because of what didn't occur the last 20 or 30 years. Then you have developers who are only interested in developing hotels and luxury apartments and condominiums, and then go under the radar and, and devise a plan to, to rent Airbnb, which the city wasn't even aware of it. And then they wanted to bring the city to court. This is ridiculous. The city hasn't got a grasp of it. And now the planners are in, a, in crisis mode, literally, trying to have an urgency about them how to approve things. Because the state says, since these cities are incapable of implementing their own housing program, we have to then intercede. I mean, me being a local, I would have to wait for someone to die off or someone to be into assisted living in order for me to qualify for a unit, which I am. I'm the youngest person in a disabled unit. That's the only reason why I'm still in West Hollywood, because the Landlords, when you're in a rent control, are finding loopholes to get you out because they don't want Section 8. They don't want affordable housing programs. And so the state and the city have to protect us against slumlords or people who are trying to devise a plan to sell off the property or a way to turn it into Airbnbs. I mean, it's ridiculous. We're in 2023. The housing element says until 2029. There is no way the city can accomplish that goal. I mean, I'm just being honest. There is no warehouses. You would have to basically take all the hotel rooms on Sunset Boulevard and partially off of Robertson in order to maybe achieve half of that. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, and thank you for the reminder, David. Um, I'm sorry, I'm not, we don't always have speakers on new business items, but I do appreciate the reminder, thank you.
Thank you, and that was our last speaker. Thank you. Item 12 is unfinished business. There is none. Item 13 is excluded consent calendar. There is none. Item 14 is items from staff. Item A is planning manager's update. Good evening again. Um, I will update you on what is coming up next on our agendas. Tonight is April 6th. The next meeting is April 20th. Um, at this moment, it looks like we will have one billboard at 9201 Sunset Boulevard um, and one subdivision map um, hearing. And then on May 4th, we're currently expecting to have two zone text amendments, one for multifamily parking standards, <coughs> excuse me, um, and one for shared housing, micro units, and senior, senior congregate care. Um, upcoming on the subcommittees, <coughs> excuse me, uh, design review subcommittee currently does not have anything upcoming. Uh, Sunset Arts and Advertising likewise does not have anything upcoming. And on April 20th for the long range planning project subcommittee, we will be discussing tree canopy standards. And then I just wanted to note, um, because the director Kehoe um, inadvertently left it out, that on Monday night as well at council, the, they heard the appeal for 8500 Santa Monica. The appeal was denied, the project was approved, um, and so that moves on. Um, and if you have any questions for me, I'm here to answer them. Thank you. Go ahead, Rogerio. Um, Jennifer, I, I saw on the web on 8850's Sunset's website that they've updated all the renders and it looks like they've responded to a lot of the comments that design review made. Is that anywhere on the agenda? Are we going to be seeing that project anytime soon? Not quite yet. There's still some work that needs to be done on that project before we bring it forward to another um, public meeting. Will it come to design will it go to design review? Or I'm, I'm not sure at this point whether it will or won't. Okay, great. Any other questions for Jennifer? No? Okay, I don't know why it says A and C, there is no B, but I'm just gonna <laughs> go with it. Um, okay, item 15 is public comment. David, do we have any public speakers? Uh, no public speakers, Chair. Great, thank you. Item 16 is items from commissioners. Any uh, items from commissioners? Really quickly, Chair. Go ahead. Thank you so much. I really just wanted to take a minute to thank the planning team here at the City of West Hollywood and our acting city attorney, specifically Isaac Rosen and Jennifer Alkire and John Kehoe for helping us through this you know, overview of new state laws. Um, I think it's extraordinarily valuable for whoever's sitting up here now and in the future to be able to review these laws and additionally me members of the public, making sure that everyone has full information um, as it comes available so that they understand as we make these decisions um, you know, that w what is guiding us to make them, what is compelling us to make these decisions in a certain way. Um, I do, for whatever it's worth, um, think that we should consider looking at this as a body on a rolling basis. Maybe it's once a year, every April, um, where we're doing a quick review of any new state housing laws or applicable planning development laws that did become enacted in the January prior. Um, so, you know, I, that there is this constant flow of information out, out to the community, but also to the folks up here. Um, but thank you again for taking this time. I think it was exceptionally valuable. It was well presented, and thanks for answering all our questions. Anyone else? Go ahead. Oh, did you want? 
Okay, well, thank you, You always, Chair. You always will, trick me that way. No, I, I was just looking at you, but thank you. I'll <laughs> take the opportunity anyway. Um, I'd like to echo what Commissioner Matos has, has stated. Thank you so much for taking the time to prepare this and to give us this presentation, answer our questions, and uh, hopefully help all of us navigate uh, all these changes a, a little bit better, a little easier. And uh, I would also like to wish everyone um, Happy Easter that celebrates, uh, happy and peaceful Passover, Ramadan, and uh, belated happy no roost to those who celebrate any of those. And um, that's it for me tonight, Chair. Thanks for asking. Thank you. You always have that sneaky look on your face, so I have to make sure. I mean that in the nicest way, by okay. the way. Anyone else? <laughs> Commissioner Thomas? Vice Chair Thomas, sorry. I'll get it right someday. Uh, I have a quick question for Mr. Kehoe, if he could come to the podium, please. So about two years ago, when we saw the first billboard from the Sunset Arts and Advertising Program, I had a question about the uh, Cray study and what if the study was flawed and we had all these billboards that was just far too bright for our residents. And now we're doing um, a study about the impact of the billboards, but it's by the same agency that did the original light study. And so since that agency has a vested interest in saying that there's not a whole lot of impact, I'm just wondering, and the decisions already been made, but I was just wondering why for the sake of you know transparency or whatever that we didn't consider or another agency wasn't considered um, when looking at the impact of the billboards. I just wanted to know if you could maybe speak on that. Um, I don't remember us saying that the lighting study was flawed. No, no, no. I was, I was saying what if, two years ago, I had a question of what if um, the, the lighting study is in some way um, is, is in some way flawed and the billboards end up being far too bright and the impact on the residents is substantial, um, how would we respond to that? That was, a, that was a big question I had at that particular meeting. I'm not saying that it is flawed. I'm just saying that now that we're looking at the impact um, of, of the billboards and, and the light and, and all of that, I'm just wondering why we didn't consider or if you have any input as to why another agency wasn't considered, and we would, because the, the agency that did the light study would have a vested interest in saying that there's not a huge impact, I would think. So we're not, so we're looking at the future projects that are in the pipeline, and we're taking into consideration the existing lighting and seeing what's changing, because the existing lighting study only looked at those in round one. So we now have a round 1.5 and a one round, round 2.0. And so that's more signs and more lights. So we're wanting to see if there are any issues that need to be looked at with these additional signs. So we want to go to the expert, and Francis Cray is one of the experts in lighting of this type. And of course, they did do the original study, so they have all the information. And so it's the easiest for us to um, go with them, and that's because uh, they are the experts in that subject matter. Okay. That's it. Oh, here we go. Now it works. Anybody else? Go ahead. I wasn't actually going to um, have any comments, but actually um, 
since Vice Chair brought it up, just a, a couple of, of quick notes that maybe relate to the lighting study as well, since it seems topical and was just heard at City Council. Um, I'll just start with saying, um, in the original report that Francis Cray Associates um, produced, well, so during the City Council meeting, I know that there was a comment from Francis Cray that um, there were light studies or observations that were made or recorded um, that suggested that Sunset Strip is within the light levels of an LZ4 category. And I don't recall seeing that documentation in the report, not to say that it doesn't exist, but it would have been good if that were included. Um, so I'll, I'll read up myself as well. Um, but it was an interesting statement that he made because I hadn't heard that before. Either way though, I think just for some perspective, uh, the, the challenge that um, maybe needs to be considered as the study moves forward, and I'm sure that, that Francis Crane Associates will look at this, is um, it may be that LZ4 light levels are observed on the Sunset Strip, and so we're designing to LZ4 standards, but the real question and what the study will hopefully reveal is the intensification, the, the use of um, electronic billboards, not just static billboards, and the quantity of them, and that intensification and what that means. Um, LZ4 probably does make sense as the right category. So the intensification is more the question. But also I would say, I recall in, in his original report that there may have been some notes about resident buildings that were located or billboards that were located within 200 or 250 feet, something like that, within residential properties. And there may have been some guidelines there. Um, Francis Cray did make some um, uh, comments about LZ3 light level standards at residential properties. So it may be worth, as this moves forward, taking a look at, at how we put this all into the Sunset Billboard policy and if there needs to be something amended to those specific sites. Um, you know, whatever we can do to help, um, you know, mitigate areas of concern. And then uh, also with the intensification, these standards were built around a certain billboard size. We're seeing billboards that are larger. Fortunately, a lot of those are getting studies so that we see what that me means and can at least have a documentation and evaluation of it. Um, beyond that though, I will say, you know, Francis Cray is, is definitely one of the most uh, distinguished um, engineers and designers in the industry and um, so it's probably really good that we have him for consistency and um, he, he's well equipped to um, serve in that role so I just wanted to make that note. Full disclosure he went to Penn State so did I but um, yeah I mean he's, he's great so I think it's 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 the right person to be doing the work um, so that's not my concern but I do hope that um, there's an awareness from city staff, and I believe there is, and from Francis Crane Associates as well, to think about what this intensification means. So, thank you. Great, thank you. Um, unless anybody else has any comments, I was just gonna, again, thank you, Isaac, for the presentation and for staff. It's not the first time that we've done this, um, and I hope it won't be the last, um, but it was really helpful, and there have just been such a deluge, kind of a fire hose of laws coming down that I think it is hard to know what supersedes and transplants what, and that was really helpful. I took a lot of notes, um, and the reading that you sent through was really helpful as well, so thank you for that. Um, unless anybody has anything else, I'm gonna go ahead and adjourn this meeting. We will adjourn to a regularly scheduled meeting on Thursday, April 20th at 6.30 p.m. 
here in person. thanks again, everyone. have a good evening.